Hey, I'm Michael. And I'm Garland. And this is our Clarity Podcast. It's a podcast designed to come alongside you as you participate in our Clarity experience here at Fellowship Bible Church. We're spending most of 2020 trying to see Jesus more clearly. And so we have uh, a written book, we have online studies and sermons, we have discussion questions, and Garland, we have this podcast. And we are about to turn the page in more ways than one in our Clarity study. So we've been in our daily readings tracking through um, the Gospels, and we're starting a new Gospel this week. And it's one of everybody's favorites. Yes. We love John. Um, it's worth noting, I think, we're, a, we're halfway through. So we're halfway through Clarity, roughly about this point. And so um, that, that's exciting. So if you've been, if you've been working through Clarity with us, uh, hopefully as we're walking through the Gospels and the Psalms and studying Jesus' life together, uh, hopefully it's been beneficial for your walk with the Lord um, and just understanding who he is. We're in John. Uh, and John is, every time I get a new Bible and go back through the Bible, that's where I start. So I'm, gonna, I'm passionate about this book. It's awesome. It's such a fun uh, Gospel to read. And uh, we want to kind of figure out as we read a book of the Bible, what's going on here. And so that's the purpose of this podcast. Yeah. So anytime we turn to a passage, whether it's to start a new verse by verse daily reading plan like this, or if we just uh, turn to a passage because it's the devotional for the day or because it's being taught, we want to ask ourselves some questions. How does the book in which this passage is found fit into the larger story of Scripture? Who wrote it? When did they write it? What was their audience? What was their purpose? And so, Garland, if you would, just kind of flesh out a little bit for us. What's the deal with the Gospel of John? What's the setting into which this book was written? Yeah, so John, uh, most most conservative scholars think that John is the John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, and so uh, he's named in the gospel as the beloved disciple, um, and so that's what he is. He's frequently called in this particular gospel, and uh, most think that is that John, uh, the brother of James, and so as such, uh, we we place the dating of John. This is really important. We place the dating of the the writing of John about 20 years, maybe even about 30 years after the writing of the other Gospels. That's really instructive for you as you're reading it because it's really different. Um, it's going to come across really different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason for that is John is writing probably in the 80s AD. That's where most scholars think, or conservative scholars at least. And so if, if Jesus' death and resurrection is in the early 30s, just think about 50 years of reflection on the events of Jesus's life. This was your friend. This was your uh, mentor and rabbi and teacher. And now you're the Lord of the earth and your savior. And you've had 50 years to reflect. If, if he's writing in the 80s or 90s, that also means that both Paul and Peter have likely been martyred two decades earlier. And the other three gospels have been written about 20 years earlier. And so think about all of that that's gone on before John sits down to write. And that helps, I think, us to understand what he's doing. He gives us a highly, highly artistic narrative where he says, I'm intentionally choosing stories to present Jesus as the Messiah so that you would believe. Uh, and John has fashioned this gospel beautifully. I mean, it's beautiful. And we're going to get to the outline in just a second uh, in order to present Jesus as such. And so he's had all these years to simmer on this. And now he writes this gospel out into the 
both the broader Roman world with the declaration that Jesus is Lord, but also to a Jewish world to say he was the Messiah. He was your Messiah. We're going to see in a minute how he's doing that. It's really clever and really intentional. Yeah, you know, we might have noticed as we've been reading in our our Clarity Daily readings that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are extremely similar. They right. share a lot. Now, Luke has a little bit more uh, material that's not found in the other two. Um, most scholars believe Matthew and Mark share a common source, that they both had a, a document that they were relying upon, even though they both have eyewitness accounts behind them. And then Luke came along to write what he calls an orderly account, a history. Um, most scholars think that Luke did a lot of interviews. He's the only one that includes the birth uh, narrative. But then when we start into John, we're going to see, read, experience things that the, the other three didn't touch on at all. And so um, we commonly refer refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic. That sounds, and that sounds like a scary word. We hear, I feel like we hear words in like the church all the time and like yeah. with Christian people. And uh, so what does that mean, synoptic? Uh, uh, yeah, it means uh, that they're similar. It means yeah. that they, they line up together. They're seen together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so in John, uh, he's going to fill in a lot of things that the other widely distributed gospels did not. And so John, of course, was an eyewitness. And so he's writing about things that he saw, he heard Jesus say, that he experienced, that he knows the other gospel writers didn't include. And so there's a lot of unique material in John that really brings the book to life and if our goal is to see Jesus more clearly, man, John is crucial to that because he tells us things about the Lord we wouldn't know any other way. Yeah, and and we're going to get to some of those things uh, in just a second because it's what makes the book come alive. Uh, so a, as you sit down to study this, let me encourage you, if you are listening to this podcast, you've been following along in the Clarity Podcast and the readings, uh, these intros to books, these are the ones I keep encouraging our people, you know, get your Bible and your pen or your journal, whatever it is that you're using, uh, maybe not listen to these in the car uh, because what we want you to do is uh, in the, the section as you open up the Gospel of John, most Bibles will have like a, a white kind of clear section at the top of that page or kind of the page before. If you have a study Bible, a lot of this material is going to be there for you. What, what we're about to go over and some of the stuff that we're talking about in this particular podcast, that's what you're writing in that kind of sec, that blank section or in your journal. And the reason is that way you can A, remember it because we all forget stuff, but B, that way you can reteach other people. If you're going to be discipling your kids through John or people you're discipling or you're going to teach this to people, it's all right there for you because you wrote it down. And so uh, what we're going to do now is kind of look at the structure, some of the main themes of the book of John. And so I'm going to give, I know this can be a little bit kind of tedious, but let me give you kind of the, the outline, the Roman numeral flow. And the reason we're doing this, once again, write it down so that you can have it uh, and then you can reteach other people in your in your ministry. So uh, John begins unusually. Uh, he, You're expecting Christmas, right? When you turn to a gospel, here comes the Christmas story, the nativity scene. And what we get instead is a 18, verse poem that is theologically dense and rich. And many people, if you're unfamiliar with what's going on here, uh, it it catches you a little bit off guard. Uh, and so we're going to look at it in just a second, but we get an 18 verse, uh, we call it the prologue of John. It's a poem. It's an introductory poem that is reflecting on the Genesis story and making crazy awesome claims about who Jesus is. What a way to come out of the gate. That's how John starts the gospel with an 18 verse prologue. 
And then, so that'd be Roman numeral one. Uh, Roman numeral two will be Jesus presented to various groups of people. And this will be the rest of chapter one. So Roman numeral two is the presentation of Jesus to different people, and they're going to make claims about Jesus. What then ensues, Roman numeral three, is going to be from chapter two all the way to chapter 12. And it's got two sections, this long, uh, this long Roman numeral three. Uh, this is Jesus, we might say, revealed as the Messiah to Israel. And so Jesus is going to be seen as performing all sorts of incredible miracles. He's going to encounter different groups of people in Israel. Uh, The first section of this, Jesus essentially encounters four different audiences of Jewish people, people at a wedding, a rabbi, a Samaritan who's a kind of a half-breed, and he's going to go into the temple and overturn the tables. And John is fashioning this to tell a story. Then in chapter 5, all the way through chapter 12, uh, John masterfully, I mean, it's brilliant, he takes the Jewish calendar, the feast, the festivals that Jews do every year, and he redefines them around Jesus, or we should say he records Jesus redefining them around himself. Sabbath, Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and Hanukkah. And then it culminates in the raising of Lazarus. That's Roman numeral three, and that's chapters two through 12. Roman numeral four begins what we often call the upper room discourse, which is Jesus to his disciples at the Last Supper. That's going to be Roman, uh, that's going to be chapters 13 through 17. And man, it's got some of our favorites, uh, like he washes his disciples' feet, abide in me, uh, all those things. And then lastly, we get Jesus. Jesus, uh, Roman numeral five will be Jesus in his passion narrative, chapter 18 through 20. It ends with an epilogue. And so we begin with a prologue and we end with an epilogue. That's chapter 21. That'd be Roman numeral six. So it's got six sections. Uh, this book does. And uh, those sections sort of guide you through. Now, the other thing that John does is he will, he will cleverly, beautifully fashion seven units of seven. There are seven I am statements. In fact, there's actually two sections of seven I am statements. Uh, Then there's also seven what are called signs or demonstrations that Jesus really is the powerful Messiah of Israel. And uh, it's not accidental that there's seven. That's this number for perfection or completion uh, in Hebrew thinking. And so Jesus is the perfect, complete Messiah. And just Googling seven signs, seven I am statements, you'll, you'll find them. They'll come up. For, we don't have to go over all of them now. But John is just masterfully putting this thing together. And that will be your big outline as we, uh, as we look at the book. Yeah. So as Garland said, it's helpful to write that um, in your notes or in the front of this, of the book of John in your Bible, because every time for the rest of your life that you drop into the book of John, you can consult that outline. And so if you're sitting in a teaching and the pastor says, hey, uh, turn to John 14, 15, um, you can consult your outline and you'll immediately know, okay, this is in the upper room discourse. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Uh, That's why these outlines are so useful. Um, The structure of every one of these books is very intentional and it helps us to understand the book more completely and to be able to um, just drop in at any point because in the normal flow of our Christian lives, we don't sit down and read books front to back. We, we drop in and we look at a section. And so knowing not just how the book fits into the larger narrative, but how that 
little section of scripture fits into the larger book is really helpful and it protects us from understanding things wrongly. And so, uh, Garland, you mentioned that purpose statement, um, that the purpose statement is, is later in the book. It's actually at the very end of the section before the, the epilogue, the little, the little tagged on section. Um, what does John tell us in that purpose statement and how does that affect the way we read the book? Well, let's just, let's just read it. Why don't you read for us uh, uh, John chapter 20, and we'll pick up uh, the verse in verse 30, and then we'll get our, we might call it, we now call it the thesis statement. Uh, it's weird to give your thesis statement at the end, but John does it here. So uh, let's read 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Yeah, so just to put that in context, this is right after Thomas has seen the risen Lord, and despite his earlier doubts, has declared, my Lord and my God. Um, and it says in verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I mean, doesn't get any clearer. <laughs> He's made it really obvious, and it's one of the reasons we often call this the gospel of belief. Uh, the word believing, and so it's used as a verb, so believe in me, and by believing in me, uh, it's used dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the gospel of John. He wants you to, he wants to present Jesus to you and then call you to respond to Jesus. Uh, just like Thomas did, he says, now you, the reader, here's your chance. And so it's, it's so well done. It's just awesome. I'm having goosebumps right now, even thinking about it. Um, so even looking at some of the, that's sort of the macro level. When we look at the parts and how they fit in that macro level, it, it really makes them come alive. So if we drop in, if you wouldn't mind, Michael, read the very first verse. So we just read the, the closing uh, note, the thesis statement at the end. How does John come out of the gate with this thing? And man, it's a claim that we got to wrap our heads around. I think sometimes it kind of just makes us confused. Well, he starts with like the most epic three words in the beginning. In the beginning. Yes, yeah. yes. And it's clear that he's drawn a straight line back to Genesis 1-1. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, God created and now he's going to show us how in the beginning God recreated. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And just, just for us to wrap our minds around what this is claiming, if you think about uh, your word or your spoken word, it both is distinct from you, but it also is, a, it's, it's coming from you. It's re representing your mind and will. It represents something about you. And what John is, is thinking about, this is just so cool. He's thinking about when God spoke in the beginning, Genesis chapter one, that spoken word is both coming from God, but it also, that spoken word also brings things to life. It also is distinct from Yahweh. And then John goes, that spoken word, look at verse 14, that spoken word became, now he's, now he's reflecting on Exodus, became the living tabernacle in flesh in the form of Jesus. And now the glory that, rest, that rested on Mount Sinai and rested on the tabernacle and the temple is now visible in Jesus. I mean, you can't come out of the gate swinging any faster and harder than that. And he culminates it in verse 18 by essentially saying, this demonstrates, this teaches us who God is is who is the God of the Bible and all of our questions we might have about the God of the Bible, this 
poem is saying, you want to know who Yahweh is? Look at Jesus. And then it's going to, the rest of the narrative is going to present Jesus in a way that completely, we might say, redefines expectations of what every human is expecting. We expect power to look a certain way. We expect kings to look a certain way. We expect victories to look a certain way. And Jesus will come and flip all those on its head to essentially say this, this is what radical others-focused love looks like. In a world that has gone to selfishness, Jesus will demonstrate unbelievable selflessness, which is why we might say one of the key verses of John is John 3.16, which I think is one of the most famous verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That i, I got to stop because I'm just getting really excited about it. Any Anything, so as we look at John... He, he weaves this story together, starting with this poem. I mean, just put yourself in the audience. If you're a Jewish hearer of this and you sit down, the gospel of John has been you know, sent around and, you, and in your city now, this scroll has arrived and you have a yearly calendar of festivals that you do. And here you have Jesus claiming he's the bread of Passover. He's the rest. He's the water at Tabernacles. He is the holy place, Hanukkah. That would just be a that would be a mind altering uh, claim that Jesus is doing over and over again in this first section, kind of chapter one through twelve, of Jesus is redefining every expectation of of messiahship, of God's kingdom, of who Yahweh is around Himself, and demonstrating that. And you're going to see different reactions. Some are going to believe, and some are going to totally reject that. And that's the point of the book. You're you're put on the spot with John. Do you believe it? Or are you going to reject it? I know you love the Upper Room Discourse. What kind of, just take us there for a moment as well, we look yeah, at some of the particulars. I, and I love what you're sharing, and I agree with all of it. What's really interesting is the the audience, the, the people who are experiencing what's being described, um, it probably reaches its zenith at the triumphal entry because mm-hmm. the roads are lined, and he's welcomed into Jerusalem, and he's praised. Um, and it, it's, I love it that John actually tells us the disciples didn't really understand what was happening. It was only later, after he was glorified, that they even reflected on the triumphal entry and realized that was the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. Even as they experienced it, they don't understand it. But then the audience shrinks from the people of Israel and all of these different audiences that you've outlined that have been experiencing him to just him and his most intimate group of followers. We want to say the 12, but it's really the 11 because very early on, Judas exits stage left only to reappear in the garden when he'll betray him with a kiss. And so I love the intimacy. I mean, I remember even as as a young teenager when I was just kind of having a quiet time trying to learn to read my Bible, when I read Jesus say, um, I'm getting chills remembering it, but when I read Jesus say, um, I call you my, my friends, and that really resonated with me. Um, the God of the universe, the Logos, the Word, the agent of creation, the most powerful force in the universe, God's Word became flesh and then wanted to call us friends? That's, that's incredible to me. And I'm, I would imagine to a first century reader, it was beyond incredible. It was actually unthinkable. And I love, as, as we read through this book, we're going to encounter in this long upper room discourse that the, the writers of the other Gospels kind of skipped over and just moved on with the action for their own thematic purposes. John tells us what Jesus had to say about how to live in the world but not be part of the world system, and he tells us a lot about how the Holy Spirit's going to work and how the Holy Spirit's going to come 
and dwell in us and help us, convict us of sins, um, how the world won't recognize him, but we as followers of Jesus will recognize the word and the power and the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so most of what we understand about the Holy Spirit, we get from these passages. And man, what a critical thing for us as believers today to understand and, and to be able to, to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and then, man, we've already talked about it a little bit, but um, the resurrection account with Mary Magdalene, it's so vivid and so real, and it just jumps off the page. And then that epilogue um, that we've actually already studied in our teaching series, we'll read again in our daily readings, where Jesus restores Peter. You can feel the tenderness, and the it's so intensely personal. The God of the universe is not an impersonal force. It's a person who took on flesh and loved Peter enough to restore him after he denied him and after he left him in his most vulnerable moment. And to know that that's the same Lord and Savior that we follow now. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. John just, it, it, it kindles my uh, flame. It, it, it fires me up every time I read it. And I think to myself, I want to follow this Lord. I want to be part of what he's doing because of what I see in these pages. Well, and that's just, I mean, we're scratching the surface. <laughs> so my, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, but in, in lieu of time, hey, we want to encourage you if, as you are studying uh, and trying to looking at your Bible and studying your Bible with the hope to see Jesus more clearly, hang in there, uh, keep going, uh, carve that time out, find that spot. Uh, I know with coronavirus, it makes it more challenging, but let's dive into the gospel of John. And let the Psalms inform your reading of John. And so um, you might be tempted to do the first little section of the reading and then to close your book, close your Bible, uh, let the Old Testament inform your reading of the New Testament, and you're going to see how this whole story fits together so beautifully. So uh, we'll be praying for you, and we hope you'll be praying for us as we continue this clarity experience. And our prayer for all of you is that you will continue to see Jesus more clearly. We'll see you next time.